I'll take the fifth. The fifth is good. Well, good evening. This afternoon, I took an hour and a half nap. I'm I'm still kind of wiping the sleep out of my eyes, so so I'm I'm a little a little groggy, little little uh, unbalanced, but I've been unbalanced for a long time. Um, we we have a wonderful evening. Um, I think you all should have a copy of the the uh, song that we're going to sing tonight, and then Pete's going to jump right into it, and um, then we'll conclude with a song and be out, but I wanted to start us out tonight with a prayer. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we welcome your presence here tonight. We thank you that as believers in Christ, we can gather together and share what it is that we have in common, and that's our mutual trust in our Lord Jesus and our enjoyment of his scriptures and the life that we share together. And so, Father, we pray tonight that as Pete teaches, you open our ears and our eyes and our heart. We pray that you might um, bring us um, joy um, and, uh, and enthusiasm, inspiration, and God, won't you bring transformation tonight? We thank you that uh, we, we stand in the presence of Almighty God. So bless us this day. And please receive a blessing tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dr. Lilbeck, why don't you grab a microphone? You already got one on your, um, on your face there. And uh, we're going to be singing the Candlestick song. You've got the words in front of you. Um, let's kind of remain seated for a while, and uh, is that okay? Yeah. And um, we'll have the final rendition of this song. Five weeks rehearsing, and I'll be really, really, really good by now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, I'm in the wrong key. Here we go. The, the risen Christ has sent his word to light the church below. Alone we're dim in this dark world, but by his grace we glow. The church will stray at night when darkness tells its lies we must 
light that the blessing is will arise the lord and his churches and his spirit too seven bright stars when the church was new they weren't living as supposed to do would their candlesticks be moved soon no longer shining out good news no longer shining out good news the church has persecution here and may be small or weak but candlesticks shine everywhere where our lord does speak no doors can close where christ proceeds nor open if they're closed so shine the light where christ may lead and may our flames be bright the lord and his churches and his spirit too seven bright stars when the church was new they weren't living as supposed to do would their candlesticks be moved soon no longer shining out good news no longer shining out good news not hot nor cold but blind in sin dead flirting with a world through gates of pearl let's hasten in into hell where behold light stands outside the door and would be welcoming in so hear his voice and greet once more meet and eat with him the lord and his churches and his spirit too seven bright stars when the church was new they weren't living as supposed to do would their candlesticks be moved soon no longer shining out good news no longer shining out good news do you have ears to hear his call with yearning burning hearts the spirit speaks to one and all and flaming grace imparts yes we have ears to hear his call with turning a burning hearts let flames of faith and grace now fall and christ
Churches with your spirit too, heaven's bright stars with the gospel true. Help us shine as we're supposed to do. May our candlesticks burn for you, forever shining out good news, forever shining out good news. How about a thank you for our composer? Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I don't know what you thought about it, but I. <laughs> you can hear a little bit of the idea of Revelation 2 and 3 in that song. And tonight, we're actually going to be looking at the theme of stanza 3. Not hot nor cold, but blind in sin, dead, flirting with the world. Uh, that's really a combination of the church in Laodicea and the church in Sardis. Now, tonight as we begin, let's do some really quick review uh, I know some of you have been here all the session, some are here for the first time tonight, so I keep reviewing because uh, reviewing is a way to make sure I remember what I'm saying to you, so I, that's a good thing. So first of all, you notice the seven churches, this is modern day Turkey, Asia Minor in biblical times, and the seven churches make this movement north, one, two, three, and then southeast, four, five, six, seven. And you can see the Isle of Patmos about 40 miles out into the Aegean Sea. Now, I would love to announce that we're going to do a hike from Ephesus to Smyrna and Pergamum, but I can't pull that off. John said the Appalachian Trail was just a little bit too tough. So he said, don't try Asia Minor. But I, I do have a couple more brochures. We're going to go to Patmos and Ephesus this summer. If any of you are interested in sailing on the sea cloud, I've got a trip we have about two or three cabins left, and I've been trying to recruit a few folks from Bay Presbyterian. So if anybody's interested, I've got this up here, okay? So it's a wonderful tour. So we're actually going to be there. I've been on Patmos once before, and it's really a treat because I think some of you remember I went to uh, Patmos in Kelly's Island in uh, Lake Erie as a kid. That was the prison camp I was sent to, and this is the prison island where John was sent where he had this great epiphany, his epiphany on Patmos, which is the story of God's plan for the ages. Now, so these are the seven churches. Now, you'll remember seven has an extraordinary significance in Revelation, re reflecting the Bible. The idea of seven stars in the hand of Christ, there's the idea of the Pleiades, the seven stars, the seven sisters, as they were called in the ancient world. Uh, we have uh, many things we could say that I can't review here. But I think the key thing we want to remember is that there are seven candlesticks. And we're actually going to see that come up tonight in the archaeology in the church of Laodicea. Do you see that candelabra that is a uh, depiction of the candles that were in the temple? Christ, of course, is now walking among the candlesticks of his church. He is the new temple. He is the risen temple. Destroy this body in three days. I'll raise it up. He said the temple, he'll raise it up, meaning his body. And so the idea of the light shining with Christ in the middle becomes the great theme of these seven letters. Now, as we go through them, we said that, uh, let's go back, that word in red, just so you know how I'm understanding these seven churches, following Hendrickson, a great commentator in the book of Revelation, he said the epistles describe conditions which occur not in one particular age of church history, but again and again. 
So my approach for interpreting these are that each of these churches are found today, one way or another, all over the world. In fact, it's always been such. These describe real churches in real space and time in the uh, beginning of the Christian age, and they have continued to show up, this type of church, throughout the ages. So they're not epics of church history, but they are, in fact, distinctive types of churches that exist everywhere in all places. Now, I, I don't have time to go through all these, but here's the, uh, the way we've been looking at it. We said Ephesus is the Orthodox Church that's lost its original zeal for Christ. We looked at that church. That's one that has the right doctrine, right practice, but it has not maintained its love for the lost. The second church, Smyrna, is the persecuted church. And throughout the ages, there have been churches that face very heavy persecution. Remarkably, this is one of the two churches that is not at all criticized in Christ's letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So they are recognized as being faithful in their time of struggle. Their great uh, hero that you can read about in church history is Polycarp, a great martyr for the faith that comes from the church in Smyrna. Uh, he's a foundational figure in ancient church history. Okay, so we go to Smyrna, then we go to Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was the church that, as we read this third letter from the risen Christ to the churches in Asia Minor, it's the sexually impure church, a church that has a lot going for it, but they're not dealing with sexual problems that are at the core of their life. And we find that this is an issue that is repeated again and again in history. And we could say much about that. We've looked at that. Then we come to the church at Thyatira. We've called it the compromising church. It has some of the biblical faith. It has a lot of the world in it, and it's trying to compromise. It's trying to just get along with everybody and just be like everybody else. The countercultural character that's in the kingdom of God is erased, and it's just a kind of chameleon-like, let's blend in and be part of everybody instead of having the cutting edge of authentic Christian witness. Uh, this comes up again and again throughout church history. Churches that are trying to make their connection with the broader culture to make it easy on themselves rather than facing the rejection that comes. I, and again, I've given many examples of these in each of these churches in our prior studies. Then we went to Sardis. Sardis is the dead church. It's the church that no longer has the gospel. Uh, they are uh, looking alive, but they did not have the way of life being taught to them any further. And we could say a great deal about this. Again, it's a great story. All of these slides are uh, copied for you. Uh, I didn't get the last set copied off. They're available. John will get them to you next week or in the future. And by the way, all of these slides are non-copyrighted as far as I'm concerned. Share them freely if you want to use them. Uh, they're yours to share. Okay, so the, again, just remember that these are my conjectures on my evaluations. You can disagree with me. But we can look at many churches that once had the name of being alive that are no longer alive but dead. And then we come to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I hope there are Philadelphia churches that are real Philadelphia churches in Pennsylvania. But this is the ancient church of brotherly love. Uh, it's the weak church, but with great opportunity. It's small, but it's faithful. It doesn't have a lot of strength of its own, but God has opened a door for it. 
and the church is taking the steps forward as weak as they are they're making a giant impact because God has prepared the way and they're going out in faith to me this is a great model of what a church ought to be weak in ourselves mighty in God's hands able to do things because God's providence goes before us and so the Philadelphia church then is if you will one of the heroes along with Smyrna these seven churches and uh, we could look at many examples of this and I uh, last time looked at a number of the examples of churches that might be called Philadelphia churches and I thought I would finish up with a few more because I think I got to Mongolia last time Okay, Mongolia is a great story. I got to tell it at lunch today. Again, at a lunch, uh, John, let me repeat it. But I won't do it for a third time tonight. I want to tell you a little bit about some other churches that in themselves are weak, but they're making a gigantic impact. In Indonesia, that's halfway around the world. That's in Jakarta. Uh, there is a, a marvelous opportunity now uh, where there is a Christian movement in the world's largest Muslim country. And the reason I offer them to you is that our students, uh, you saw three of our students who are here today. I've taken about on four or five occasions anywhere from two to four students with me to go do mission work in Indonesia. Now, obviously, uh, my kind of mission work has to be through a translator. I can't speak Bahasa. I uh, don't know any of the Chinese languages. But I go, and when I go there, they say, we're going to go do evangelism. So I've been... Uh, the farthest away, I think, has been to a place called Almahera and Sulawesi and Ambon. Uh, those are islands. I once said I want to go to all the islands in Indonesia, and they said, well, you know, there's only 20,000 of them. <laughs> Nobody in Indonesia has gone to all the islands. I'm trying to get to at least all the big ones. I've been to Borneo, Kalimantan, Sumatra, Java. Every time I go, I say, take me to another one. So uh, one of the ones that I, I got to go to is Sulawesi, and they said, okay, we're going to take you to the, uh, what they call something like the radical market, radical for the Westerners. So you, you go down the aisle, and you get to choose what you want. Well, hanging here is a python. It's, you know, it's already been cut up, just ready for you, but you can see it's a snake. You can, if you want a piece. Right next to it is, is a monkey. Now, the thing they do with a monkey is that once the monkey is caught, just like the dogs that they serve there, they blowtorch them and burn all this flesh off, I mean all the hair off of it. So they're ready to take home, ready to eat. So, and I looked and said, well, I don't think I'm ready for this radical food. The most scary one were the tree rats that they had. I mean, they're, they're about this big. I don't think they bring bubonic plague to the best of my knowledge, John. And if you heard the message this morning. But so you, I, I, on my menu, there was rat, dog, monkey, Python and a few other things I wasn't sure that was enough. I said, I don't think I'm hungry today. I was, all of a sudden, my, my hunger was assuaged. But uh, why do I tell that story? Well, with our students, we went to this place, and over a week's time with about 40 people from a, a couple local churches and our team, we shared the gospel with 50,000 school children. Yes, you heard that right, 50,000. I didn't make that number up. We counted them. Now, how could we do that? Imagine, in a Muslim country, the world's largest Muslim country, they declare themselves to be a religious country. It's one of their foundational doctrines. And so when you go to that area, wherever you go, they can say, would you like to have a religious program for your students? And the people that are part of this group are known as educators. 
But also when there's an, an old white man and they've never seen somebody like me, they say, oh yeah, bring him in. You know, so I, I'm kind of like the gimmick that gets uh, get called. And, and I preached the gospel along with our, our students. And by the time the week was done, we were able to present the gospel to 50,000 students. We've been back and we've done it again. Same, same ability. And so you know, I thought about this. This is a weak church. It's a small little minority in, a, in the world's largest Muslim country. And they are reaching far more school children for Christ than we can in America, which is allegedly a Christian country. Because it's illegal to do that. If I went to the local high school and said, hello, we would like to do a religious program here, they'd say, there's the door. This is a Muslim country. And they say, okay, come in. That's a Philadelphia church in the sense of how we're using it. A weak church with an open door, and they take advantage of it. And God is doing great things. Uh, their missions program, uh, that ha they have a school, a missions college. Uh, the uh, leader of that program, his name is Kokan. He studied a little bit at Westminster through years. I've been with him a number of times in Jakarta. He has about 30 students, and he says, our missionary team working with the churches reach over a million school students every year and we're dissatisfied we need to do better they keep upping the number Isn't that amazing a million and that's not faking those are real numbers praise god for that okay there are other things going on i mentioned india here uh, i had the joy of climbing uh, old man peak on my 65th year of life it's in the foothills of the himalayas they, I, every, every place I go, I say, let me go on a hike. If I'm there long enough, we get... So they took me to this place. They didn't tell me what its name was. They told me it was uh, Goram Tiba or something like that in Hindi. And I said, Let's, we got to the top. I said, okay, I've climbed Goram Tiba. I look in the distance. You can see the Himalaya mountains all snow-capped. Here I am on this, in the foothills of the Himalayas. Yes, there's uh, snakes and there's, uh, you know, there's tigers out there. Thankfully, we didn't see any. Uh, but we're at the top looking. He said, okay, what does this translate into? He said, old man peak. I said, well, this is very, very appropriate. You chose the right one for the right person on the right time. But now the reason I tell that is that in the northern part of India, there's a wonderful Presbyterian ministry that has begun to take place. Now remember, Christianity in India is a very small minority. This is an ancient... Hindu country, and there's a section that is very Muslim. And there have been Christian missions that have gone there. And I think about a Philadelphia church when I think of India for the following reasons. <clears throat> when the first missionaries went to northern India, to Dehradun is the area, right in the foothills of the Himalayas, uh, the, the Hindu people wanted nothing to do with Christianity, absolutely nothing. Said, we do not need you, go away. But there were little children that were walking around helpless and orphans. And they said, who are these? They said, well, they're the outcasts of leper families. Their parents have leprosy and they've been banished and their children have no one who wants them. Nobody wants a leper's child. Now let that sink in. Your, your parents are going to die because they have leprosy. The children can't go home because of disease and no one will have them because you have the diseased heritage in your family. So you're shunned. So what do the Christian missionaries do? They set up leper homes for the lepers and orphanages for the leper children. Okay, now 
Go forward into the future, maybe 60, 70 years. There are now seminaries, there are churches, there's Christian movements all over the place. Guess who these are? Leaders. Oh, my grandma and grandpa were lepers. My dad and mom were lepers. The gospel has reached these kids, educated them, and now they're the leaders of the Christianity in India. Look at that, right out of the garbage dump. There are now tremendous blessings. Uh, there, there are extraordinary stories. I wish I could tell you an example. But let me give the story of one professor uh, that I met there. His name is Hirolel Solanke. Uh, Hirolel told me his story, and I, I've, I've, to this day, it, it stunned me. It goes something like this. He said he, he was in about the 800th year of a prestigious blue-blooded Hindu family in a part of India where Christianity had never come. He'd never met a Christian, didn't know what a church was. There were Muslims in that area, and there were Hindus, and that's all there were. And he went to school, and uh, he found some of his friends having this hysterical game of mockery and laughing, throwing around a piece of paper. And he said, what's this all about? He walked up, and they said, oh, we've, we got this piece of paper. It says something about somebody named Jesus in a religion. Isn't this stupid? And they were literally throwing it back and forth making fun of it. And so he's, he said his heart was smitten. He said, why would we make fun of another person's religion? Shouldn't we just respect people for their different... And so they said, okay, if you're going to be like that, why don't you take it? And so he took this piece of paper. And he just went home with it. And, uh, and while he was home, he decided to take a look and read it. And while he read, he said he understood absolutely nothing that was on it. But he came to the word Jesus, and he said it was almost as if lightning went through his body. He said, literally, he was so afraid he dropped the paper. I can't read this thing. He tucked it away, and he said, I'm staying away from that. And a few weeks later, he had had a particularly difficult day. He said, you know what? What was in that paper? I'm going to take a look. And he, again, he read it, and it meant absolutely nothing. But when he came to the name of Jesus, he said he felt as if an electric shock went through him. He said, what is this all about? And so he decided to read it with care, and at the bottom it said, if you'd like to know more about Jesus, write to this address. So what did he do? He, he wrote to that address, and a few weeks later he received uh, a couple books that said, this is going to be a guide on the life of Jesus, if you want to learn it. So he read it. He wrote back for more. And wouldn't you know, he became a Christian. And so as the process, and I can't tell you his whole story, he ends up uh, finding that group, becoming part of it. Eventually, he studies more, and he ends up as a Presbyterian theologian at a seminary. And he said, a Presbyterian, of course, believes in election. And how could I not believe in election? Do you know anyone else that was converted to Christianity by being given a Christian tract from a Muslim and a Hindu? He said, only, only God can reach someone like this. And he said, so now he's one of the few distinctive Reformed theologians in New Delhi. And when we had our International Calvin Congress at Westminster just uh, a year ago, last summer, I said, Hirolel, I want you to come and meet some of the world's Calvin scholars because of your great story. So he was there, and I had the joy to welcome him at Westminster. Now that's just part of the story. Lepers, evangelism tracks. And what else was interesting is that one of my former students, and I taught PhD courses at Westminster uh, for some years before I became an administrator 
One of my students, his name is Matthew Ebenezer. You can tell he came from a Christian background with a name like that, right? So he's here. He's from a Hindu background many generations back, but then he became a Christian, adopts a Christian name. He has a Ph.D., a church historian. He's now the principal of Dehradun. So that's why they invited me there. They said, come and do the Reformation celebration. So I got to do, uh, you know, talk about some of the things you've heard me talk about here. So I was doing that there where I was climbing Old Man Peak, learning about the lepers, learning about the power of election through pieces of paper thrown away. And uh, I'm, I'm talking with him. He said, you know, for dinner tonight, I want to come and take you to what is considered one of the most upscale restaurants in town. I said, wow. That sounded better than maybe Python and Monkey and what was Tree Rats and Sulawesi. I said, this, this is all right. I bet this is going to be. It was a beautiful night. I was served uh, lovely over mountainside looking down. Uh, the, the waiters and waitresses and the meals. It was delightful. And I said, thank you so much. He said, well, now let me tell you what you've experienced tonight. He said, this is a ministry of my wife. Every one of the people who served you today are illiterate street people that have been cast away. They knew nothing when we brought them in. We taught them how to cook, how to clean, how to lead, and it was exquisite. And I said, we just want you to know that when we share the gospel, we recognize its world-changing power. It takes people without hope that are helpless, and when they find Jesus, they begin to find a whole new way to live. It was magnificent. I'm hoping that one of these days I can go back with the film crew and show that story because this is what we hear all about social justice, which, by the way, in my humble opinion, is just another name for Marxist ideology. I want to show you Jesus justice, where people who are utterly outcast become productive and valuable. This is now an award-winning restaurant and Dehradun, it's made up of people that have nothing but Christian love and help, enabling them to do their work. That's a Philadelphia church. Boy, I could keep on going. I got to get to Laodicea, but Laodicea is such bad news, I want to stay in Philadelphia. Okay. Let me finish up with just a couple more. There's a, a couple wonderful things that are going on. Uh, Pensmore, uh, it's, it's still premature. Go online and read about Pensmore. Pensmore is a, uh, a new building. It's a new Biltmore that's being built just outside of Branson, Missouri. Uh, it's uh, spectacular. It's on 500 acres of Ozark Mountain land. It's made entirely out of cement. You wouldn't think cement could make it beautiful, but that's the point. The man who's building it is trying to show that his technology can make something incredibly energy efficient and also beautiful. And so this building is designed, it, it will be here as long as the pyramids. It's designed to last forever. The only thing that's going to take it out is going to be a direct nuclear blast. Now, he did work for the CIA before he went there, so you see he has a little bit of a survival instincts in him. But uh, it, I'll just call him Steve. But you can find it online if you want. But why do I mention that? Well, Steve is the one who enabled my book, Sacred Fire, to actually become available to the world. I want to tell you a story. It goes something like this. He was reading one day in R.C. Sproul's book, Table Talk. You've all seen Table Talk magazine. It's a great devotional tool. 
the late R.C. Sproul, uh, is continuing on with his team at Ligonier. And he read the story of the founder of Westminster, J. Gressa Machen, who had the courage to leave this beautiful school called Princeton Seminary and start fresh with nothing. He brought four or five professors to start all over again. That's just 90 years ago now. And he said, wow, is there really a school like that? I'd like to know more about it. So he reached out and discovered us. So that became a friendship that started to work. And as some of you know about my big fat book, George Washington's Sacred Fire, I want to tell you, this is a, in my humble opinion, it's a Philadelphia story because it's a, it's a story of weakness that God chose to smile on because it had nothing going for it. First of all, when the book was started to be written, I didn't even know I would ever finish it. It was just a hobby that I'd done because I'd gotten embarrassed in a debate 15 years earlier, and it was just ongoing. It was the, and then somebody by the name of D. James Kennedy, maybe you know of that wonderful evangelist. Dr. Kennedy had come along and said, you know, I hear you're doing a book on Washington. If you can get your book done this year, I will buy 19,000 copies of it. Now, at this point, all of my notes on Washington, I figured, would end up in the dumpster when I died. My kids would say, who wants all this stuff? It doesn't mean anything. It's just chaos. And all of a sudden, I was being challenged to get this book done. Well, I won't go into all that story. I got it done. It served its purpose, and it was almost running out of gas. It was almost done. We had a, a, maybe a 1,000 copies left, and uh, somebody sent a copy of it to Glenn Beck. Now, you may remember when Glenn Beck was on Fox News, he used to have about 3 million people watching him every afternoon. His radio program was heard, it still is heard by many people. And uh, somebody called me up and said, you'll never believe this, but Glenn Beck is on his radio program right now saying, everybody in America needs to read George Washington's Sacred Fire. I said, now wait a second, is this April Fool's Day? What's going on here? He said, no, it's really true. And lo and behold, I was then, within the next couple of days, invited to go on the Glenn Beck Show to talk about my book. And it's hard to believe, but this book, with only about 1,000 copies left, there was now an order for 85,000 copies. Can, can you believe that this came? It was now, it had, it's called the the media effect. You know, if somebody puffs something that's famous, it gets blown out of, way out of proportion. Well, basically, the book should have been done, but, but you know, it was interesting. Steve Huff said, I saw that presentation, and I want you to use the gift that I have provided for you to get that book in print. He had given a $125,000 gift so that book could be printed at just the right moment. That's, that's utterly unplanned. It should have been a wonderful thing. And so it went on to sell 150,000 copies. It was the number one best-selling book on the Amazon list for only a week, but it made it there for a week. Okay, went up for a week. Now, it's my, my good friend John Bechtel, my missionary mentor years ago, the guy who sent me on my first missions trip. Do you remember when I told you about Michael, the guy in who became a Christian in China. He's the guy that sent me on that trip. Well, the bottom line about this particular experience was he was in Hong Kong and he was reading USA Today and he's looking at the book list and it said, uh, books, top books in America. It said, uh, George Washington's Sacred Fire, number three in America by Pete Lilbeck. He said, then in there I said, 
Lord, keep Pete from getting proud. And so when he told me that story a month later when he came back, I said, you know, it's now about the 10,000th position. Couldn't you have waited at least a couple weeks before you prayed that prayer? The Lord answered it. Man, it just the bottom dropped out of the thing. But it's the point of all of that. Why do I tell the story? Whether you read my book or not, I didn't come here to tell you the book. But that is an example of an open door that I had nothing to do with. Utterly weak, unintended, can take no credit for it. It just was something that God chose to do right at that moment. That is of him. This is what is beautiful when we are serving. And so this Pensmore opportunity where Steve, this wonderful building he's building, he's praying that God will use it as a place to bring unbelievers in science together with believing scholars. He's helped us at Westminster put on what we call our Science and Faith Conference. We do it with the Discovery Institute. And just in another couple weeks, I think it'll be our number eight that we've done every year for the last eight or nine years. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. These are things that show us that God does open doors. I want to give you another example uh, in Montana. Uh, I'll be very cryptic here because I don't want to say too much. Uh, about three years ago at Westminster Seminary where I lead, I was at a point where I realized that my work with the major donors of our school is coming to an end because you only have a shelf life for so long as a president. People you know, they begin to get called to heaven. Uh, they get tired of giving. They get donor fatigue. Uh, their circumstances change. They can't afford to give. It's just part of, if you know, if you've done nonprofit work, you know that's the way it is. And I, I went to uh, Dr. David Garner. I think Dr. Garner's been here, so some of you may know David. I said, David, you know, we just need to pray that God will raise up some additional friends to help the center because I have no idea how we're going to make ends meet. We have to raise $3 million a year. It's hard work. So our students only pay 50% of their cost. So I prayed, and I prayed out of weakness. I said, Lord, we have a seminary that has to run. I don't know where this money's going to come from. I mean, literally, these are the things that keep me up at night tossing and turning, saying, God, this is your work. I don't know how to do it. All I can do is trust you. Well, what was beautiful? In Philadelphia, I had this amazing moment of probably about six months after that prayer where I said, we just need to start praying and trusting God. One of our seminary students who had graduated 30 years earlier said, hi, my name is Doug. I'm a nondescript student. I used to sit in the back row. Nobody thought I would amount to anything. And you, all the famous guys, they sat all the way. You hear their names everywhere. I was in their class, but nobody thought I'd be. I've been a bivocational pastor all my life. I've worked faithfully, but I'm here today because I want to tell you my brother just sold his business for $500 million. And he's asked me to leave everything I'm doing and become his philanthropic advisor. And uh, the first thing I said to him is, you know, I think you need to get to know Westminster Seminary. Okay, now, we are in the process of getting to know this wonderful gentleman, and he has become a good friend. It's a prayer request for you. I could say a lot more about it, but he actually has just bought a gigantic ranch in Montana. And he said, would you please begin to pray for me so I can use this as a way of reaching leaders for Christ? And uh, he's so caring about this. 
Okay, out of weakness, God opens a door. How? Because we begin to pray. So part of what I'm asking us to think about is that I believe the Philadelphia church model is what all of us should be. In ourselves, we are weak. But as we trust God, he opens a door to do things above and beyond all that we can ask or think, to sustain us, to show new directions. Yes, he closes doors too. If he closes doors, we cannot open them. If he says, no, this is not my purpose. And so if I can, since I'm opening, this is my last night, this is my infomercial sermon, okay, I want to encourage you to pray with me. You know, I'm hoping that Westminster will not remain just an Ephesian seminary, but will rediscover our first love. That we would be an authentic Philadelphia-type school where we say, God, open the door and let us go out to preach the gospel to the world. Make an impact wherever we go. And you know what? Bay Presbyterian, you guys are small. But you know what? God's opened a door for you. And through your faithfulness, you're going to accomplish big things. That's the promise of a Philadelphia church. Okay? So I wanted to pack all that in there, but I think that's the hope of every church planting opportunity. We don't know which ones God will open a door for, which one he will determine to close the door for. And they're both part of the message. But that's why we must keep praying, God, use what we're doing, and we'll trust you to bring results. Okay? So let's go to Laodicea. Now, what's Laodicea like? It's the self-focused and complacent church that's blinded to its spiritual need. It's the lukewarm church in denial. So I could show you a lot. I have to uh, just describe it this way. These are pictures of actual archaeology features where Laodicea is. You can see there was a Christian church. There's actually a cross and stone that's there. You can see the columns. It was a magnificent ancient city. Christianity made its presence known there. Few of the facts, it was the richest of the seven churches. In 60 AD, the city was destroyed, and they refused aid from others. They said, we don't need anybody's help. We have enough. Self-sufficient. It was a center of finance. They were the center of banking and, and the, of the banking industry in their day. They were a center of fashion, renowned for their soft black wool coats. The newest styles appeared here first. It was a center of medicine. Uh, there was a large medical school which created a study tablet that was sold all over the Roman Empire. And they also had a uh, different kind of eye cures that they used. It was a crossroads, a seat of government, rich trading, precious metals and gems. Uh, they were a place, if you notice there, where water came from a hot springs about five miles down. And so that will be reminding when we hear the language of not hot or cold. By the time the water got there, it hadn't cooled down. It was just lukewarm. As I was getting ready to run over from my hotel, I went to get a quick drink of water, and it was tepid. And I, I felt, oh, I don't want to drink this. I said, I got to drink it. But I thought of Laodicea in my head. Okay. Do you notice that people don't say, man, tepid, man, tepid. They say, cool or hot, but... Man, tepid. It's so tepid. You never hear it. Laodicea is right there. Nothing. It's just, ah. Okay? So the point that we want to think about is here's some of the ruins. And if you look carefully now, as, as you can see, there's a beautiful mountain, some of the pillars that are there, some of the blocks. But can you see that one right there? 
look carefully, you see a, a Latin cross, and underneath the Latin cross, you'll actually see a candelabra. It's the seven candlesticks. Did you know the seven candlesticks were actually on a column in the church that was built in Laodicea? Because they knew the story. But notice it's broken down. Now, if you look carefully, it, it may be hard to see, but if you think of that big circle right under the cross as, as the heart, if you look at right about 5 o'clock, if you come down, you'll see actually there a shofar. That is the Jewish horn. Remember the trumpets of the book of Revelation? There they are. And then if you look kind of at what might be 8 o'clock, you'll see a palm branch. These are symbols right out of the book of Revelation. The palms, the trumpets, the candelabra, the cross, the, the uh, lamb slain. And guess what? It's been put into ruins. That is the warning that comes against the church. Okay? So each of these churches now, you remember, there are seven churches. The risen Christ sends a letter to each, seven letters. Each letter has seven parts. Now my symbolism of Laodicea is that it's big, but it's utterly inadequate. You know, it has a big zero in the middle for the O. Everything's out of a line, unordered. It, they think they're important, but they got it all wrong. They misunderstand. So as we begin to look at Laodicea, it's the self-focused and complacent church blinded to its spiritual need. It begins, like all of them do with the commission, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Then an element from Christ, often from the first chapter, but maybe somewhere from the rest of the book, one of his attributes are included, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The quality of Christ as the one who says this is true, and that's what amen means. When you say amen, so be it. I believe it's true. I stand with it. Okay, Faithful and true. He is the one who is e evaluating the church in Laodicea. He's giving it its accurate assessment. They think they've got it all put together. He says, no, I'll give you the truth of who you are. I'll give you an honorable one. Notice the commendation. Hardly a commendation. Some would say it has no commendation at all. The only thing it says, I know your works. At least they were doing something. But what they were doing wasn't all that great. So notice how the condemnation comes. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Just like you want your beverage, you want it hot coffee and a cold Coke or something like that, right? Now listen, I like coffee enough, I drink it lukewarm too, but it doesn't taste as good, right? It's just that that's not how I order it. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this is powerful language. Christ is saying, I find you so displeasurable that I want nothing to do with you because you are unwilling to really look at who you are. You are not committed, a cool mountain stream, or a really hot bath from the, uh, the fountains of the earth would be great. But in the middle, who wants this? Their condemnation. This is what they say. The lukewarm church in denial in verse 17 of chapter 3 says, I am rich. 
I have prospered, and I need nothing. This kind of church is wealthy. It is successful, and it is self-sufficient. But the Lord goes on to say, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They do not realize that they are everything that's opposite of wealthy, opposite of successful, and opposite of self-sufficient. They are standing without the gospel, and in the gospel, no matter how glorious they may be, or any of us or any church, if we do not have a Redeemer, we have the plague of sin that we heard about this morning. We are unable to stand before God, no matter how good we are. Without a Redeemer, without a Savior, there are none righteous, no, not one. All our works are as filthy rags. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is not a man who does not sin on the earth. The Bible is so clear about this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. They're saying, we're fine. We need nothing more. As the Lord, who's the amen, the true witness, evaluates the church in Laodicea, he says, you are wretched. What does that mean? Very unhappy or unfortunate state. Poor quality. Very bad. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. They did not have this grace. for They did not have the gospel. Pitiable, producing a feeling of sorrow or compassion because conditions are so contemptibly poor or small. We look at Laodicea and say, man, they are a rich, great church. Look what they've got going for them. And the Lord looks at them and says, oh, man, they're so spiritually poor that we ought to feel sorry for them. They're blinded. They don't even know the gospel. They don't even know what it means to find a Savior. They don't know what sin means and how God has brought the gospel to restore our covenant relationship. They're blind. I once was blind, but now I see. This church is blind, unable to see their surroundings, and yes, naked. A lack of clothing either entirely or insufficiently for the climate. George Washington called his army naked because they are marching barefoot in the snow. They had clothes, but not enough. This church looks so enviable, but from Jesus' eyes, they are the exact opposite. So what's the correction? I counsel you. You remember Isaiah 9-6? Jesus is the wonderful counselor. To buy from me gold refined by fire. Get pure gold. How do you buy Isaiah 55 says, come and buy without price. This is what we do when we come to Jesus. We we buy by faith. Would you please give me what I need? I can't afford it. And he gives us what we're desperate for. Uh, It says, then, so then, so that you may be rich. Well, that's what Paul says. Poor, making many rich. The gospel is not identifiable with worldly wealth. It is identifiable with spiritual wealth. By the way, this great phrase, poor making many rich, that was the life motto of George Whitfield, the great evangelist. He said, I have nothing, but I am in the process of blessing everyone I can with the gospel and calling them out of the treasures that they have to help build that orphanage down there in Georgia for the kids that have no parents because their parents are in prison. So the idea of spiritual riches, blessing others. 
physically no riches, but making others rich with the gospel. White garments, Galatians 3.27, clothe yourself with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you may clothe yourself in white, with white garments, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. When God looks at us with his x-ray vision of absolute purity, he sees that all of us, no matter how good we are, fall short. You know, I went to see my dermatologist recently. I had a couple kind of fun bubbles he took off my shoulder. Okay, he said, don't worry, they're just ugly, but they won't hurt you. So he took them off. And, you know, he's, he came in really quickly. I was undressing. He said, you know, it takes you guys so long. The ladies are undressed in 30 seconds. It takes you men about five minutes to get everything off. So that was his comment to me. I don't know. But, you know, what, what I do remember is it's very embarrassing when you stand there like this, basically stark naked, you know. And you're glad no one else is looking. At least you hope no one else is looking. <laughs> you know, you, you, whenever I go through the, that uh, millimeter machine at the uh, airport, you go like this. I always like to look at the rotundity of the person in front of me and say, whoop, I'm a little worse or I'm a little bit better. But I'm always glad that I got a little clothes on, you know, to cover up the, the extra uh, pounds that I'm storing for a rainy day, right? You know, there's this natural embarrassment we have, but I want to be really serious. God sees you absolutely in your nakedness. You cannot hide from him. When God said, Adam, where are you when he was hiding? It wasn't because God didn't know where he was. He was beginning the process of saying, you're dealing with the omniscient, sovereign God. You can't hide from him. There's no place to hide. There's not enough to cover it up. Nothing can wash away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood was shed to make us white as snow. That's what we're being told here. This church has everything except the gospel. And therefore, everything they have is nothing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does it profit a church to have the biggest building, the biggest budget, and the most successful uh, name brand recognition if they don't know Jesus? It's nothing. That's the point. And yes, you need salve to anoint your eyes. You're famous for your medical school for things that are help, help people. Listen, I can give you the ability to see. Remember like Paul in Acts chapter 9, the scales falls from his eyes? 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Jesus gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart of flesh from a heart of stone, a resurrection life from our death. We need to have spiritual life. Are we part of churches? that are in spiritual denial. We've got everything. We've got it going. But do we have the gospel? Are we centrally committed to Christ? Okay. The correction. The correction continued in verses 18 to 20 has promises. Note that love corrects and disciplines. This is being radically lost in our day. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. To so zealous and repent love doesn't say oh just do what you want everything's fine everything is equal it says I love you enough to tell you the truth that's the kind of doctor you want to go to I know none of us want to hear the diagnosis guess what you've got cancer guess what you've got a disease guess what you need surgery we don't want to hear that but if we need it 
We want to hear it because we want the truth. And this is what love does. Love, including love from the pulpit. Love from the pulpit does not cover up the hard truths of the gospel. It says, these are hard. I don't delight in these pains. But this is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord. Yes, be angry at the messenger, but this is what the sovereign God of the universe declares. That's what the Reformation was all about. That's what gospel preaching is all about. It's not saying what everybody wants to hear. It says, love it or not, this is God's word. Be glad you have a pastor that preaches the word of God for you. There are a lot of churches that have everything but that. And that's called Laodicea. Now, notice further. Uh, it says, in the correction, the correction is coming in a personal form. I can't help but be a little dramatic and do a little knock here. You know, when I'm in a hotel room and I hear that knock, I try to say, leave me alone, I'm still sleeping. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there at that time of day. I'm just trying to sleep in, right? No, I go and open the door. A knock is an invitation to engage someone. Look at this. Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. Do you remember the story of Peter knocking at the door and Rhoda doesn't open it? She runs and says he's there. He said, he can't be there. Well, she should have let him in and would have proved it. She was so excited she forgot to open the door. Okay, But the point is, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the great gospel invitation. Tonight, Jesus is knocking at the door of every church that names his name. He's at every church service knocking at the door. And he's saying, you know my name. Do you know me? I'm here. Do you know my word? Are you willing to open up and come in? This is... A tragic scene. Jesus is locked outside of his own church. Think about that. The door is locked. Someone's, Jesus, if anybody ought to be allowed to just walk in, it's Jesus. And he's not welcome here. He's asking permission to come back to the church that has started in his name, and he's on the outside locked out. The image is not of a human heart here. I want to make it clear. We often use this of an individual. It's of the church. Jesus is on the church's door knocking. And then the individual is, who within this church hears that knock? He doesn't say if the pastor does it, or if the deacon does it, or if the usher does it, or the night watchman does it. He said, he that opens the door. That individual, will you welcome Christ into this church by saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. And the invitation is he will eat with him and he with me. Clearly, that has the image of the Eucharist. It has more than that, though. It has the image of the communion of a heart with the living God. And the question that we all had to ask, some of us are snowbirds getting back to go to our churches back home. Is Jesus on the inside of your church or locked out? And when you go back, will you be the one that says, I'm going to open the door for him to come in here. I want him in my church. He belongs here. Is your church have everything but Jesus? Your church is like that everywhere. The traditions, the riches, the fame, 
but he's not there. Okay. How tragic. Jesus is offering to communicate with anyone that hears his love for his church and opens the door. The challenge. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, I'm going to let you, if you are going to come with me, conquering the unbelief, I'm going to let you sit right here where I am on my throne. Have you ever been invited by a pilot to sit up in the cockpit? That's the image here. The one who's driving the plane of the universe. He says, come up here and fly with me. I trust you enough to be right here. That's the invitation. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 in this book will show us the image of Jesus on the throne as the risen lamb with the Father. Uh, the call now comes to us and says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is said seven times, every letter. It asks us seven times, do you have an ear to hear? Are you hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying through his word? All the churches have been spoken to, and you are to hear that witness in every church. It is for you. Do you hear? Are we conquerors? Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So as we begin to apply this Laodicea church to our context, I'm reminded of the words of John Stott. He said, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. It's time to heat the tub. It's time to get the gospel cooking again. So what are some of these churches, again, of, that we might suggest? And I ask you to forgive me if you think I'm being harsh or inaccurate in my assessment. Okay? But I'm going to be as honest as I can because I'm trying to be truthful in light of the gospel. So I'm not against megachurches at all. I think they're wonderful. But you know what one of the liabilities of the megachurch is? The program takes the place of the gospel. We do everything for everybody, but we don't tell people about who Jesus is and teach the word. Have we grown so big and have so many powerful things we're doing that the gospel is not being preached? Prosperity gospel churches, there really are. I never heard a really full prosperity gospel sermon until about six months ago I was traveling in a city in uh, the middle part of the United States, and there was a, a television program on that had preaching. And there was an old distinguished preacher. He was really a tough guy. And I said, oh, I like his style. He's up there preaching, you know. He's ready to get... But it was all about getting wealthy. It's all about how God wants you to be rich. And about how people are mad that he's flying around in his airplane, and he has his new car, and he has his big house. He said, God wants to take care of us. He's going to take care of... And I said, I've never heard anything like this. And I guess, I guess it's, it's on television. It must be everywhere. This is a prosperity gospel. This guy had a slick suit. He was a polished character. And everybody was listening to him and was all about Jesus wanting you to be rich. And I said, my goodness. That's got to be Laodicea if I've ever seen it. All it is is about money and nothing about do you know the Savior 
Do you see what he did? The danger of prosperity gospels that trades this world for heaven. And I tell you, it's a bad bargain. If you trade this world for heaven, you get the alternative, which is not good. The danger of every wealthy suburban church. And I like suburbs. I'm glad for people to be wealthy. I pastored a very upscale church. But you know what? It was critical as I preached to say, this is what the gospel is. Your money does not get you to heaven. Where you went to school doesn't open the doors of standing before Christ. Your pedigree, as impressive as it may be here in this earth, does not welcome you to the throne of grace. You must come through Christ. We need the gospel. The power of positive thinking. Listen, I love positive thinking. I try to think positively as much as I can. But I think uh, old President Eisenhower got it well. Did you ever hear what he said? He said, I find the Apostle Peel appalling and the Apostle Paul appealing. Do you remember the Apostle Peel, the power of positive thinking? Now, it's good to think positively, but you cannot think your say positively into heaven. You have to think realistically. You think, I'm just wonderful. I'm so happy. I'm so good. I'm going to have a great day. That's all good. But have you taken how seriously your sin must be dealt with before God? We all fall short of the glory of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse had a great way of putting this. He said, imagine that you're in a, a, a beautiful state and you're on the top of the highest mountain. It's glorious. The air is pristine, clear. You are the richest person in the world and you are on top of the world. And there are other people way down in the bottom and they're in the, they're in the uh, uh, mines. They're digging coal. They're filthy and dirty. They're low-class people. And you're looking down on them from on high in every possible way. He said, you know what the problem is? As high as you go, you're not getting out of the state you're in. You're still in the same state. And all of us are in the state of sin. You cannot escape the state of sin by going higher. You're still in that state. You have to leave that state. You need to move to a state of grace. And it doesn't matter whether you're the lowest person or the highest person. You must come to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where salvation is found. And so the problem is not with thinking positively. It's thinking that positive thinking is the gospel, and it is not. Further, how about this? Your best life now. You know, I want to have my best life now. I don't have any problem wanting to have a good life. But if that's all you ever hear, if there is no call to repent of your sin, no warning about a destiny of eternity without the gospel. Your best life now is one that is indeed pitiful and deadly and dangerous. And while I want to be gentle about Joel Osteen, I don't say I want anything negative about his success. He's very successful. I'd say, where is the gospel in his preaching? On national television, when he was asked, is there a hell to worry about, he couldn't admit it. Uh, why? Because it was not good news. The good news is only good news when you know the bad news. The reason we need a Savior is because of the bad news of our sin and God's holy judgment. The name it and claim it approach, you cannot name and claim heaven. You must call on the name of Jesus Christ. 
and he gives you claim to that which you do not earn or you do not deserve. It is all of grace. And so we could add to this the modernist churches, liberal churches, emergent churches that will not talk about sin. It is the dirty word of Christianity today. And yet it is the foundation of the gospel. You cannot hear the gospel until you hear that you are missing the mark of what God calls you to. We all miss the target. We need a Savior. We must be brought into contact with the living God through Christ. We see examples of televangelists failing. Internationally, just to give us some of my own stories, uh, these things that I've spoken about, might, you might be able to give me much better examples. But I'm, I'm really saddened. Chongshan University, it's one of the biggest uh, reforms uh, universities in Korea. I've known the president there. I know several of the professors. I've been there to lecture. We've done conferences with them. And you know the tragedy? The past board chairman and president are now in prison of the biggest reformed seminary in South Korea. It has thousands of students. Why? Because he was so concerned for his own prestige to control what he was doing that he unilaterally changed the bylaws of the school and made it his own personal possession. It's a long story. He's brought to, up to, into the courts. Now he's in jail. A Christian, at least by profession. But he put power and fame and prestige and control, success, in the place of the gospel. And this is what happens. He was building his kingdom while he was losing the gospel witness for Christ. Laodicea is around us. It exists internationally. It takes many forms. But the way it begins to be corrected is by saying, do I have a savior? Do I know who Jesus is? Do I know why he came? Do I know what he did? Is he my personal Lord? Well, we must wrap it up. Uh, did you notice that at the end of every one of these letters, there is a promised reward to the conqueror, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers? In Ephesus, it's the tree of life in paradise. In Smyrna, it's no hurt by the second death. In Pergamum, it's the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the recipient. Thyatira, it's authority over the nations and the morning star. In Sardis, it's being dressed in white and never having your name blotted out of the book of life. Acknowledgement by Christ before the Father and the angels. In Philadelphia, it's being made a pillar in the temple of God. The name of God and the name of the new Jerusalem in Christ's new name written on him. And in Laodicea, there's the blessing to sit down with Christ on his throne, even as Christ conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, isn't it interesting? Every one of these churches, in spite of their difficulties, their challenges, and their failures, they all have an extraordinary blessing to the one who determines to overcome what they're facing with a true recommitment to Christ and his gospel. Now, do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? All of these belong to us. They're given to all the churches because we're all to listen to it. So if we begin to think about it, what does the tree of life in paradise mean? It means eternal life in the new Eden. 
If you are a conqueror by real gospel commitment to Christ, it means that you are returning to Eden, but even greater, because Eden could be lost. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil canceled out the tree of life. You're going to have the tree of life, the wonderful gift of life. Notice further, if you have no hurt by the second death, it means you're going to have eternal life because the final resurrection is going to bring you into the glorious presence of God. Nothing is going to take away that life. And if you have a hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the recipient, this is full fellowship in heaven and full acceptance with a brand new identity. You are a new creation, a new creature. And if you have authority over the nations in the morning star, it means you're going to share in the rule and the kingdom of the Messiah. See what the point is? The one who overcomes is the one that has the blessings of heaven and the curse of this world being canceled out. To be dressed in white and never having a name blotted out of the book of life. Acknowledgement by Christ before the Father and the angels. That's full purity, full assurance, a full vindication. That's what we mean when we say, we'll be saved to sin no more. Don't you long for that day? This is the destiny of the one who really looks to Christ in the true gospel of faith in the crucified and risen Lord. It'll be being made a pillar in the temple of God, the name of God, in the name of the new Jerusalem, and Christ's new name written on him. This is eternal security, permanence by eternal adoption into God's family to dwell in his helm. Isn't it great? You're going to have a new address, never to leave. And then finally, to sit with Christ on the throne, even as Christ conquered and sat down with my Father in his throne. You'll be a co-heir with Christ in his victory. As we bring our seven church study to a conclusion tonight, the question is, is this your destiny? Is this what you're looking forward to? You know, it is yours if you have an ear to hear. Tonight, if you hear these things and say, I long for this, Jesus. I want this to be mine. He said, this is my gift to you. I'm standing at the door and knocking. This is my church. It doesn't matter what church you're in. If you have an ear to hear, hear what I'm saying and receive this as my salvation gift to you. Well, I hope as you think about these things, God might graciously give them to you as your great future and blessing. The overcomer is going to lose the curse and gain all the blessings of eternal life. And that's the great good news of the seven churches. So as I finish up tonight, I want to finish my infomercial. Okay. Tonight, I'm going to ask Pastor John to pass these out. Would you do this for me real quickly? You are under absolutely no obligation to do anything with these. Uh, they are an envelope already stamped with a re uh, return with an opportunity to think about uh, caring about Westminster's future. Now, if what you read in there is not what you're interested in, but you'd like to be on our mailing list, just put your address and say, put me on your mailing list. I have what I call my president's letter. I send out a letter. It goes out about once a month or once every other month. If you want to know more about this school that's trying to build these kind of godly churches, get on our mailing list at least, and maybe you want to do more. It would be a great honor. Finally, the uh, slides, if they're useful, make copies, pass them out. And we're going to conclude with our final hymn right now. So let's sing and we'll wrap it up.